Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. This episode, we're continuing the book Desperate Voyage by John Caldwell, 1948, and we're on chapter three. Chapter three, practice. The Perlas are a low, thick-wooded group seemingly at anchor in the southeastern quadrant of Panama Gulf. A scattered mestizo population of Indian, Negro and Spanish inhabit its quaint, semi-civilized villages. They eke out a meagre living from the uncultivated tropical fruits and vegetables and abundant fish off their shores. Their pueblos lie on the leeward sides of their tangled islands and usually front small bays. I had anchored for the first night in Perry Bay at Pedro Gonzalez Island. The next morning, early, I made sail. A brisk wind, wetted by torrents of rain, sent me east on my quest for a safe bay that I could work into and drop my anchor. Close by, in the lead of Senora Island, I found a sandy spit and manoeuvred up close to it. I guided myself in by standing on the stern, manipulating the tiller by foot and sounding the depths as I crept closer with a hand-led line. When I thought it fit, I brought the bow into the wind with tiller hard a lee and sails luffing. I pushed the anchor off the rail and freed the chain to rattle out the hawse hole. I loosened the peak halyard and clawed in the main. I threw the staysail and jib halyards loose and doused the staysail with a jerk and teetered out on the bowsprit to pull the jib into a neat lump. I was anchored and it had been easy. I felt confident. I thought I would go below and enter it into the log. Then it happened. I could sense through my bare soles on the deck that the keel was thudding against something. In the tight anchorage, I had neglected to stop off the chain. It veered out full length, putting me stern first ashore. The rain poured so heavily it stood solid on the decks before it could run off. The sea gurgled with its patter. When I saw I was aground in this bleak, uninhabited little island, the rain, for the first time, felt cold. The tide was ebbing speedily. Two hours later, Pagan was on her beam ends. I sat on the top rail, drying in the new sun, trying to picture a solution. My kittens moped about my feet, wet to the skin and small as rats, echoing my hopelessness as they scratched along the canted decks. I saw my voyage at an end where I sat. I could hear voices saying, I told you so. I thought of my wife and I thought of going back to Panama without my boat. I watched for hours, hoping a boat would round the bend and tow me off. The tide was coming back and the bow was beginning to waver around. She would either fill with water or ride higher on the beach. I watched the tide seep higher around her, licking and exploring. I got angry, and though I wasn't sure what to do, I resolved to fight back. I piled much of my heavy gear on the shore with the kittens. When the bow floated and she righted a little, I shored her up with a water barrel. The tide marched higher. I heaved tight on the anchor chain and fired up the noisy little engine, gunning it at high speed. The tide crawled upward and I hoped it would crawl on till it floated her. I jumped into the water up to my thighs and strained against the heavy stern post. The bow was buoyant but the stern was fast in the sand. I shifted my weight from the after peak into the forepeak. Still no change. The tide had stopped rising. It was now or never. I put the throttle full down and jumped in again, pushing against Pagan's three and one half tons with every last ounce of strength. She eased an inch two inches and then stopped. I rested a minute and tried again. Another inch and another. Then she slipped two inches. I was amazingly tired. 
I threw my back against the stern, pushing till my heels dug in. She stirred and slipped, then slid clear. My boat was saved. Running aground was not my only blunder as my practice sailing continued that first week in the Perlas Islands. I made errors of navigation, such as the time at dusk I mistook a sand cay off Viveros Island for a smudge spot on the chart and put Pagan bow first high and dry on it, where she lay on her beam ends for two tides before I finally hauled her out to deep water. Then there was the time at Kasaya. I saw a good spot to cast anchor for the first night, just under the village, in the lee of a grassy spit in two fathoms. Here is where I erred. In waters where the drop of tide was sixteen feet, I anchored in two fathoms. At a monstrous hour of the night, I was tipped gently from my bunk. I struggled over the sloping floor, through a jumble of strewn stores, to the hatchway. Then I knew. Pagan lay slumped over, her beam deep in the stinking mire. All I could see was an eerie mass of shadows except where a faint moon glinted in the morass. There was work to be done. It meant stamping about knee-deep in the smelling slime and fetching and carrying to make my boat tight against the returning flood and at the same time make her light so that she would float before she would sink. Three hours later found me naked and mud bespattered, checking by flashlight the result of my emergency labours. I had nailed down the cabin door, I had dogged all hatches and ports, I had dug away from under the rail and lashed my two purposely emptied water casks close against the bilges. Inside I had shifted heavy lockers of food from the port side on which she lay to the starboard side. Much of her heavy gear I had carried ashore. Later, when the lapping water licked upward on the planks, I slugged about in the slush and hip-deep water, straining my back as my jaunty little craft strained hers in sucking from her fast grip as she rose to the occasion. But the most humiliating blunder I made came off in the bay fronting the junk lumber village of San Miguel on Del Rey Island. I let my anchor go when its chain end wasn't made fast to the deck and it flew out and disappeared into the harbour as I stood there watching it. Pagan was adrift, heading for the rocks. For some unaccountable reason, I couldn't start the engine. Then Pagan was knocking against a shallow ledge, and that left me only one thing to do, hop in my dinghy and tow Pagan by rowing away from the ledge. But row as I would, I couldn't fight the current. So I set up a wild scream to the villagers for help and they came out in their kayokos and hitched on and together six boats of us towed her off to mid-harbour where I leaped aboard, filled my sea bag with tools and used it for a jury anchor that night. Another error I made, I offered a dollar in the village next morning to the man who would die for my anchor. Seven men pulled out into the bay to search for it and strangely enough, Despite the fact that they were scattered their quest over a hundred foot circle, all seven discovered the anchor at once, and they all claimed the dollar. It was worth seven dollars to have the anchor and chain again. Hardly a day passed that I didn't make some sailor's blunder, but the more mistakes I made, the more skillfully I learned to sail, and the better I came to know my boat. In the end, I lost my anchor. It happened in the ideally protected little basin off Sebago. A great haziness surrounds the loss of that anchor. I entered it in the log as the mystery of the missing anchor. The mystery is still unsolved. This is how it all happened. I made an early afternoon approach to the village. I was sighted when still well out, and boats put off from shore to meet me. This welcoming party rather aroused my vanity, and I found myself shooting into their presence with a daring manoeuvre or two in the offing. 
The Sebago anchorage is windless. I pointed in under full power with all sail up. I saw where I could sail between two close-lying boats and impressed the islanders with my skill at the tiller. Pagan was footing it fast. The stem parted water with a satisfying gurgle. I grinned beforehand over the neatness of what I would do. But in the final moments, as I bore closer, my enthusiasm for the trick fainted away and I decided too late I didn't want to do it. Sailboats don't stop with brakes, nor do they make hairpin turns that greatly resemble hairpins. At least Pagan didn't. I pushed the tiller hard over and screamed inwardly for a ready response. When the natives saw my bow waver, they too began to waver. Their paddles churned the water and instead of spreading, they closed. And instead of avoiding me, they drove into me. Or so it seemed. I couldn't see. The headsails hid everything. I felt the thud when we struck and heard the wood splintering and heard the swearing in Spanish. I ran forward expecting to see one of the boats badly scarred. But when I saw them both stove in and sinking and their occupants thrashing in the water, I didn't know what to think. The first of the natives pulled himself aboard. His face was candid with severest pain, a pain of hugest inconvenience. The others came and stood dripping beside him, fumbling their small pouches of wetted tobacco. When the words flew, I was cursed and ranted as only the Latin tongue, wrangled by an outraged Latino, can do it. I could only stand flat-footed and mumble. They demanded $10 for each boat. It was like asking $100 for a broken shoestring. It was especially heartbreaking to me because I was down to my last $25. What with paying for the anchor and purchases of bananas and smoked fish and a few lopsided pearls, the only kind found in that group for Mary. I offered them $5 for the two kayakos and they were ready to revolt. We quibbled back and forth with our limited language, refusing to understand each other till dust was gone and dark came. Finally, they left in a huff, taking with them my little clinker-built dinghy given to me in Panama as compensation for their hollowed lugs. I gave it to keep peace in the village and to ease my conscience. It was that night the anchor disappeared. How it disappeared, I don't know. All I know is it was gone when I went on deck at daylight. I made the usual preparations to sail, then heaved in the heavy chain, heavy enough in itself to hold Pagan in a quiet haven such as Sebago. I knew the anchor was gone when I first pulled, but I thought it had merely slipped its shackle. I started the engine and moved back and across the air-clear water, peering over the gunwale, seeing the same moss-grown rocks and coral formations. About mid-morning, some of the natives rowed out and helped me. By noon, my suspicions were wakened enough to suspect thievery, there was no anchor on the bottom. It was a mystery I could best settle by getting underway before something else happened. I readied Pagan to sail. I dumped my tools back into my sea bag and made it fast to the chain as a jury anchor. I ran the sail up and shoved off for Pedro Gonzalez Island. It was June 1st. I had completed my first week of practice. I had visited bays and inlets of all the islands of the Perlas Archipelago except San Jose, which was quarantined by the army. I had flogged my boat down narrow channels. I had fought upwind and upcurrent in tight waters. I had sailed my boat on every conceivable angle to the wind. I had lain flummoxed in the long, recurring calms and had made errors enough to win a giveaway checker game. My confidence was sharpened. I was learning. I could say I was beginning to understand my boat. In every emergency, I had got myself out of what I had got myself into. I had now the feeling of a sailor, if not the prolonged actual experience. 
Through it all, my sprightly little cutter had proven herself a staunch sailor. Whether on her beam ends ashore, or butting clumsily into a reef, she bore an unaffected decorum and grace. My boat could take it. I liked her. I was beginning to think of her as an individual. However, despite my liking for her and confidence in her, I couldn't move myself to make the jump off into the Pacific with her quite yet. I thought of it, but shrank from it. I needed more training. At the same time, I realised I couldn't prolong the preparation much longer. Another week or ten days at most was all the time I could spare. I had less than four months to race the hurricanes to Sydney. Chapter 4. Confidence As my eighth day of practice hauled around, I decided to do something more impressive than playing around in close. So the morning of June 2nd saw me cleared away for a long-distance cruise around the whole Palace group. With my kittens wide-eyed and capering on the cabin, I stood out to the south from Perry Bay. I could, by a nearly rectangular sailing pattern, make the entire trip in a 24-hour day, but I hadn't counted on the uncertainties facing the seamen in the Gulf of Panama. Between calms which were relieved only by impotent winds, I coaxed Pagan at a snail's pace. I coasted around to the south of Del Rey, past Punta de Cocos, east of Pachia Island, the last island in the string, and with a little isle bearing west by south, I turned northwest and prepared to heave to for the night. It was my first night on the water. I was eager to know what my boat would do, how she would express herself with a lashed tiller all night, sailing under her own free hand, while I was below in the bunk. I didn't know exactly what to do, so I left all sail up. Pagan struck a northwesterly course with the wind playing at west of north. I lashed the tiller slightly aweather and eased the mainsail. As the wind billowed Pagan's sails, she tended to move her bow into it. Thus, close to the wind, the mainsail luffed fruitlessly. Jib and staysail barely pulled, but pulled enough to give the slightest headway. Then, at the rudder's command, she fell off west of north, with sheets straining and a few ripples in the wake. Thus, backing and filling, I left her to bide her night. Somewhere late at night, I awakened to the raucous whipping of headsails, the screech of wind in rigging and driving rain. Gusts from a squall were beating her down. Gunnel to the water, she was flying into the night. I hadn't yet handled Pagan in a squall. This was my first one. To get the extreme angle out of her decks, I pulled down the belligerent main. She righted, as I hoped she would, and squalls suddenly lost their terrifying reputation. One thing was important. Get the mainsail down. The jib and staysail could take it. Dawn found me west of Sebago with a light wind bearing to northwest. I swung to a heading of southwest and crawled along a lee shore under the beam wind. Pagan steered herself under a lash tiller all day with nothing untoward happening. That afternoon was especially calm. My fishing luck was in the doldrums too because I failed to catch my mewing cats their usual afternoon fish. They fretted on the foredeck, hiding under the anchor, refusing to be friendly. Later, though, I hooked a beamy yellow tail, big enough for all three of us. Fried fish with strips of bacon, slack-baked corn patties, washed down with coconut milk, went well for an early dinner. One nice thing about the crew on Pagan was the lack of complaints with the food. The day was waning. I was standing well off the southwestern tip of San Jose. My course was shaped easterly. Mafafa, southwestern Perlas village, a good two hours run, was my destination. It would have been a night approach, but I wasn't worried now that I had some experience. 
I could make it all right by rounding Punta de Cocos in time to sight something prominent in the village, then steering through the dark by compass. Punta de Cocos is the rocky end of a finger-like peninsula that juts southward off Del Rey. In the crook of the finger, off land, lies Mafafa. Once I passed round the point, I could see the village. The enclosing dark was outsailing me to the point. In one of those reckless moments, I decided to cut in hair close in rounding Punta de Cocos. I could see every so often a number of growling rollers crash onto the point where a fast shoaling ledge threw them up. Seas were piling on it suddenly and toppling onto themselves, throwing white arms of water upward. If I timed my approach carefully, I could shoot past the point at the intervals between rollers. If one could rely exactly on the actions of natural things, wouldn't it be a dull world? At the moment, I changed Pagan's angle to cross Punta's bow closely. Two big combers bore down on me from a beam. Pagan got a deck washing I shall never forget. It came so suddenly and at what seemed a peaceful moment that I was overwhelmed. The mast from the hounds down was awash with spray. I froze to the tiller and watched the water scurrying over the decks, the first water I'd seen there. The solid rock wall was a heave-line toss away. Another roller rammed her and crowded aboard. This one had broken farther out and came aboard in a surge. I thought of the engine and the mistake of not having used it. Pagan was thrown so close to the rocks that I could see crabs clinging to them. My decks were water-loaded. When I looked out to see if I could fend the boat off, I saw the cats swimming aft along the flooded deck rails, only their heads in view, wild-eyed and pouring through the water. Pagan was about 60 seconds from the closest fists of rock. I slung the tiller a lee, grabbed the kittens, ready to toss them high onto the rocks. A countersea rolled back from the rock face, killing the effects of the next roller. Pagan steadied, filled away and pulled off a few feet. But the next sea caught her where the first had. In a smother of foam, she fell back. I could see nothing I could do. Cats in hand and tiller underfoot, I waited, petrified. A fourth sea boomed broadside against her, spilled over the rail and wrapped her sharply against the first line of boulders. As the jolt ran up from the keel, I was terrified lest her mast jump out and fall over me. Without looking directly at it, I could see the mast was swaying wildly. All this time the tiller had been very hard down. Her bow had twisted away from the rock face and bow on she met the next sea. As she slithered a few feet sternward, I could visualise the rudder and propeller smashing into the rocks. But somehow she lost little way. She rose to it, foundered momentarily and battled on. With her bowsprit thrown sky high one minute and immersed feet deep the next, she slowly pulled away from the angry cape. Her sails were pulling with all force or she would never have made it. She slipped away to smoother water, but my eyes were glued on Punta de Cocos, where the seas charged against the rocks and where I had nearly lost my boat. I had brought her off safely and I felt a flush of kinsmanship with what sailormen call seamanship. I had saved my boat had acted sensibly under duress. I smiled happily to myself. At last, my confidence was thoroughly built up. I was ready to go. The Pacific beckoned. I looked at the darkening horizon beyond, which was my patient wife. In the morning, I thought, in the morning, I'll be on my way. But when morning came, I was interrupted at my breakfast by rapping on the deck and the cheerful voices men have at dawn. I came up to find a rowboat of soldiers tied alongside. 
They were from an army weather station in the same bay. They climbed aboard. No matter what their rank, they took me for what I was, a sailor boy caught in the rush of after war. They were greatly interested in my boat and the proposed trip. They evinced a hearty desire to help me get ready to go, so I decided to stay another day. We pitched in early, the six of us, and what a job of work we did. We painted the mast and spars, we did the decks and deck house and cockpit in a lurid design consisting of the four colours of paint I had aboard. We oiled the standing rigging, puttied portholes against seepage and sewed bolt ropes onto all the sails. One, who was a mechanic, dismantled the little marine engine and at the end of the day he explained a host of benefits performed. Something about plugs cleaned, carburetor adjusted, feed line cleared, generator overhauled, valves ground and so on. Another, electrically minded, wired Pagan so that a flip of this switch or that set her cabin ablaze with light from my engine battery. Even her running lights were wired for emergency use. The same GI, by performance of his magic, transformed a junk radio I had wanted to give the Deep Six into a useful instrument. Another boy, exercising a hidden talent, awakened by army ingenuity, did me an outstanding service by building a large locker, half the width of the starboard bunk, and its full length from the deck beams down. The value of this only a boat owner can know. Another lad designed and built in a bumpkin for Pagan's transom to stay the tall mast in case of heavy weather. Thus, ten days after my arrival in the Perlas, I was ready to go down to sea. From jib tack to mainsail clue, my little cutter was at her fighting best. Time to weigh anchor and shove off. But the soldiers, there's nothing too good for a soldier. By way of thanks for their generous assistance, I proposed a trip. I admit I was reluctant to do it. I wanted to be on my way to Mary, but I had to show my appreciation to the isolated soldiers. We sailed around Delray's southeastern bulge to San Miguel that day. It was the bright spot of Pagan's life under my hand. We returned at dusk the next day to the little bites around from Punta de Cocos. Pagan's last service as a pleasure yacht had been rendered. From now till her ill-fated demise, her work was to be serious and finally grim and relentless. That night found me outfitted for sea. Water beakers filled and bunged, lockers stocked and gear lashed and tied. There was even a supply of canned fish aboard for the kittens, a gift from the soldiers. One thing I was convinced of, my boat could take it. Ten days of hard usage had proved that. She had a history that made those ten days possible and made all that she went through out on the open sea possible. Pagan was Norwegian designed and built. Her planking, decking, ribs, knees and timbers were from the weather-tested far northern slopes. She had blunted the challenge of turbulent Scandinavian seas for many years as a supply boat for lonely Baltic lighthouses. In 1934, Pagan arrived in Panama after an Atlantic passage from Poland. Aboard were four Poles ostensibly headed for Australia as settlers. They had outlived hair-raising escapades and a discouraging series of bruising gales, after which even tropical rainy Panama looked better than the prospect of sunny Australia. They promptly sold Dwaya, which means spirit, as she was then known, and there followed for that little gaff rig sloop 12 years of peaceful harbour circumnavigation. Light harbour sails, bellied by soft harbour breezes, were bent to her spars. From Cologne to Balboa, she luxuriated in the peace and quiet of yacht club atmosphere. A yachting pennant swung from her masthead. Parties took place in her cabin. 
she became well known as the original pagan on both the Atlantic and the Pacific sides. At some time during her 12 years career as a coastwise and harbour playboat, her sail plan was redesigned to the Marconi rig and Pagan became a sharp, fast cutter. She was regarded as one of the fastest little vessels on the isthmus. Railed down, there were few who could match her. The boat I was to sail with was fast and sturdy and after my numerous experiences aboard her, I knew her. I had confidence in her and so I had confidence in myself. What more could I ask? I stepped out into the cockpit and flashed my light through the rigging and across the decks and found everything as it should be. I was pleased. I went below where I lay a long time before I slept, thinking into the low ceiling, glad the time had come to be going. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.